0: Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. My name is Michael Chevalier, and I am Associate Director here. It's exciting to have you here at our third installment of our series on Reason and Beauty in Renaissance Christian Thought and Culture. Um, Before beginning today's event, um, I first want to thank our co-sponsors, a number of different Catholic Institutes, and especially our co-presenters for this, the American Cousanos Society. Uh, the American Society, Kuzana Society, is a society of scholars interested in the life, work, and writings of Nicholas of Kuza. You can learn more about Nicholas of Kuza by watching a video presentation that we did on him a few weeks ago by David Albertson. You can also learn more about the American Kuzana Society by visiting their website and even following them on Twitter. They have a brand new account started today. Um, join us next week for a lecture on Women humanist in the Renaissance, Paradise and Free Speech in Maderata Fonte, um, presented by Tamara Albertini, a professor of philosophy from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And we also have started our special programming for students. And we are hosting a master class for graduate students on Newman's critique of liberalism, faith, reason, and antecedent probability being presented by Professor Stephen Fields on July 9th. Um, If you know any graduate students who might be interested in that, or if you know anyone who'd be interested in our programming, um, feel free to direct them to our website where they can learn more. If you want to support our work to our efforts to bring the Catholic intellectual tradition to classrooms across the country by forming future professors, you can donate today at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. and We'll put that within the chat so that you can um, have ease of doing that. If you donate today, you'll still get in this fiscal year, which is a great support for us. Um, I'll now hand it over to Rob, our moderator of the series to introduce tonight's speaker. Rob.
1: Thank you, Michael. Ah, here we go. Uh, Thank you indeed for and welcome all to this third presentation in the series reason and beauty and Renaissance Christian thought and culture. The series highlights ways that rational and aesthetic pursuits interlocked and fed each other in Christian thought and culture in the Renaissance period. And we are very delighted to present this, as Michael said, as a collaboration with the American Kuzana Society. Upcoming presentations include very varied and rich topics, including the vibrant and erudite, but often forgotten importance of women in the humanist movement, which is next week, Renaissance Thought and Number and Measurement and the New Science, the week after that, July 14th and Christian iconography in uh, Titian's paintings, uh, and many others. At any time during tonight's presentation, you can ask a question of the moderator through the Q&A function at the bottom of your of your screen. At the end of the presentation, I'll moderate a quick Q&A session with, with uh, our, our presenter, and we look forward to your questions. I'd like to now welcome Professor Denis Robichaud. Denis Robichaud teaches in the Program of Liberal Arts at the University of Notre Dame, his research on the history of philosophy specializes on Platonism, Neoplatonism, the classical tradition, and Italian to Renaissance humanism. He has recently published a book on Ficino entitled Pla- Pla- me, "Plato's Persona: Marsilio Ficino, Renaissance Humanism, and the Platonic Traditions," and he is currently leading a project to produce critical editions and studies of, of Ficino, uh, who also translated uh, ancient Greek philosophers like Iamblichus and, and uh, Theon Smyrna, and we look forward to seeing the fruit of that. With, with his expertise in teaching in the liberal arts and with his knowledge of the uh, Christian philosophical tradition, we are very pleased to welcome uh, Professor Robichaud. Uh, you've already turned your camera and, and unmuted yourself. Perfect. Uh, welcome, uh, Professor, and I'll turn the, 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 the form over to you.
2: Well, thank you, Robert. Um, I wanna thank you, uh, thank uh, Michael, the Lumen Christi Institute, um, the American Kuzana Society um, for uh, the invitation to participate in this series. I've enjoyed the first presentations and looking forward to the next ones as well. So I'll just get to it and share my screen. So um, what I thought I'd begin with right now is uh, by starting by reading just a little bit of Ficino to kick things off. Divine providence, touching all things powerfully and ordering them with charming care, magnanimous Lorenzo, resolved to arm holy religion, not only with prophets, sibyls, and holy doctors, but but also in particular to adorn it in a certain way with elegant philosophy, in order that piety itself, the origins of all good things might at last march forth untroubled among all professors of wisdom and eloquence just as much as it reposes safely under the watchful eye of its own domestic servants. For providence decreed that religion, which is the only way to happiness, ought to be common truth not only for the more uncultivated persons, but also for the clever ones. Indeed, in this manner, all are led to beatitude, which is the reason reason from which we're born, or the reason for which we're born, excuse me and we can all work in common study to arrive at this end more easily and safely. Thus, omnipotent God at an established time sent down from on high, the divine mind of Plato to shed light on sacred religion for all peoples with his life ingenium and wondrous eloquence. But since even until this present age, the Platonic sun did not completely rise on Latin peoples. Cosimo, the glory of Italy and a man of noble piety sought to propagate the Platonic light which is exceedingly beneficial for religion from the Greeks to the Latins and designated me who had been educated in his household a great deal to this work above all. However, even though I had been since my youth a worshiper of the Platonist name, I undertook such a grave matter not for my own initiative in fact but under the fortunate auspices of your ancestor Cosimo hoping that a divine power would not be wanting for such a necessary and pious duty. Therefore, I entered into the academy, having been first led there by this hope, and I translated 10 of Plato's dialogues from it into Latin before Cosimo passed away. After his death, I gave nine more dialogues to read to your most excellent father, Piero. But after Piero departed this life, Fortune, who's often envious of famous works distracted me against my wishes from my translation duties. But you, a worshiper of religion and a patron of philosophy, recalled me with all favors and help to my undertaking. Therefore, with these revived favorable auspices, I returned to my established plan. And I didn't just translate platonic thought, but sometimes encapsulated it in argumenta, and sometimes also explained it in brief commentaries. I thus most gladly dedicate to you this complete work that is now finished." So. Since I was asked to give you an introduction on Marsilio Ficino and the philosophy of Plato, I thought I'd begin this evening with what most Renaissance readers of Plato would have first encountered with opening a book of Plato's works. I've therefore translated for you these opening words from from Ficino's dedicatory preface to Lorenzo de' Medici for his 1484 translation of Plato's complete works. The preface is actually much longer than what I've quoted. In it, Ficino begins to explain his hermeneutical principles for interpreting Plato's thought. Um, But before I get carried away with Ficino on Platonism, it might be worthwhile to take a moment to familiarize yourself, um, at least very briefly, with Ficino's life and works. So Marsilio Ficino is one of the most important philosophers of the Italian Renaissance. And by the end of the 15th century, he was also one of the most famous intellectuals of the period. He was born the son of a prominent physician in Fillinia Valdarno, a small town near Florence in 1433, but he spent nearly his whole life either in Florence or in the surrounding countryside. Ficino was eventually ordained a priest and he became a canon in the Florentine Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore. He received the best humanist education of his day, learning and eventually teaching advanced um, stylistic Latin oratory and was even part of the first generation of European scholars to really master Greek. And it might be worth pointing out that Florence was the home of the first chair of ancient Greek that was held by a Byzantine scholar called Manuel Chrysolora. and that chair was established in 1397. In fact, Ficino became probably the most accomplished Hellenist of his day. He was enthralled by the ancient world, um, especially mythological, religious, and philosophical subjects. Beyond his humanist education, Ficino was a medical doctor who took care of plague victims and studied, for lack of a better expression, traditional scholastic philosophy and theology, including medieval doctors and early church fathers, both in Latin and Greek. He worked in fields of philosophy of mathematics, devoting himself to the classical quadrivium and was especially keen on geometry, astrology, music theory, and optics. Ficino, in general, suffered, or we could say was maybe blessed, with a bibliomania, a disease that compelled him to try to master whole libraries of ancient texts. And he had access to one of the best libraries in the world, especially for Greek manuscripts that was amassed by the Medici in Florence. Ficino also had an artistic bent that's evident in his rhetorical style, in his musicianship, and in his cultivation of friendships with poets and artists. Ficino's work can be divided into his scholarship and his own philosophical and theological works. But since much of his philosophical and theological work is edu- exegetical in nature, or it seeks to interpret the works that he's uh, translating, um, this division is a little artificial. He's hugely prolific, so it's worthwhile to spend a little bit of time looking at uh, this, his scholarly production. So in terms of his work as a translator, Ficino did quite a lot. Um, in 1474, the 24-year-old humanist and poet, Angelo Poliziano, would later become one, if not perhaps the greatest philologist of the Italian Renaissance. You see him here um, uh, depicted by Ghirlandaio along with Ficino. Um, he wrote to Ficino in 1474, asking him for a list of his writings. Ficino, who was, only, who was already, I suppose, 40 at the time, um, had his reputation already pretty well established. Um, And even though he still had about 25 years of scholarly productivity ahead of him, uh, his his CV of translations was already very impressive. So amongst the works that he translated from Greek to Latin, uh, he lists Proclus' elements of theology, Proclus' elements of physics, uh, Iamblichus' Summa of Pythagorean philosophy and mathematics, something called the De secta Pythagorica, Theon of Smyrna's Mathematica. You may ask yourself, who are these people? I'll say a, 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 a word about them in a moment. Um, as well as a a series of other works, including the Corpus Hermeticum um, and, uh, of course, the Platonic Corpus. So I've argued elsewhere that Ficino's earliest Greek to Latin translations, um, which he finished already in his early 20s, were of Proclus's elements of theology and elements of physics. As well, at the time, he probably translated other works that aren't mentioned in the letter to Poliziano um, by Proclus, namely his hymns, as well as uh, the pseudo-Orphic hymns to the ancient pagan gods. None of these works survive, but I've published fragments of Ficino's translations of Proclus's elements that I've identified and dug up in his uh, manuscript annotations. Ficino, Ficino thereafter began translating Iamblichus' uh, De secta Pythagorica, Theon of Smyrna's Mathematica, and Hermius's commentary on Plato's Phaedrus. Um, these are all late ancient Platonists, and it's, it's, it's worthwhile to bear that in mind as we continue thinking about Ficino. As Ficino mentions in the preface to Lorenzo that I quoted a moment ago, he completed a first decade of platonic dialogues in, in a Latin translation for Cosimo di Medici in 1464, as the old leader of Florence was dying. After completing this first group of platonic dialogues, Ficino then translated Um, the works uh, by uh, Pseudo-Hermes Trismegistus, um, again at the Medici's behest. Ficino's scholarship is thus at the service of translating not just the dialogues and letters of Plato, but also other works from the Platonic tradition. And as is clear, especially from his very early translations of Proclus and Iamblichus, perhaps the two most influential late ancient Neoplatonists after Plotinus, Ficino was smitten especially by these works of late ancient Platonism. So here I put a a list, um, not for you to memorize, but so you can see some of Ficino's favorite sources. So we can already start to draw an important conclusion on Ficino's scholarly activities, namely that at a very, very early age, he devoted himself to Platonism. Although his full translation of Plotinus was years away, by the time he wrote his letter to Poliziano, Ficino had already studied, annotated, and abridged passages of Plotinus. And although it would take too long to go in depth into another famous episode from Ficino's Youthful Studies, I'd be remiss not to mention that the fact that Ficino was also one of the first readers of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things, um, after it had been recently rediscovered by Poggio Bracciolini. Ficino speaks about Lucretius' strong influence on, on him as an adolescent, but Ficino also later became the first Renaissance philosopher to write systematic arguments against his Epicurean atomism. But to return, to Ficino's work as a translator. After finishing his complete translation of Plato, Ficino's two largest translation undertakings were to produce a complete complete Greek to Latin version of Plotinus' Aeneids, which I've already mentioned, which he finished as early as 1486, but then revised it afterwards, Um, as well as uh, Greek to Latin translations of two important works from something called the Corpus Dionysiacum, Um, which are known as the De Mystica Theologia*, which he finished in 1491, and the De Divinis Nominibus, so um, on the mystical theology or on the divine names, which he translated not too long thereafter. But that's not all. After finishing his Plotinus translation, Ficino began working on a mammoth commentary on the Aeneids, in part to help him with the exegesis of the Aeneids, to try to decipher and to explain to his audience what Plotinus was trying to say, but probably also to take a break from this real onerous work, Ficino um, uh, took his break as a form of, of, of uh, as a time to do some translation work. So he translated and eventually published a whole number of other texts that are also on this list that you see by Iamblichus, most famously the Demysteris and other works by Proclus, um, Porphyry Cinesius, the late ancient church father, uh, the Byzantine author Michael Psellus, um, as well as Priscanus Lydus. He also translated another church father, um, Athenagoras's On the Resurrection. But it's worth mentioning two other important translations that Ficino did not from Greek to Latin, but from Latin into the Italian Tuscan vernacular. Um, Namely, he translated Dante's Monarchia, which we heard a little bit about um, uh, two weeks ago. And he self-translated his own uh, Latin commentary on Plato's Symposium about which I'll speak later, the De Amore, into the Tuscan vernacular. So I'll only make one more comment about Ficino's translation of the Platonic corpus. So in the the preface that I read uh, for you before, Ficino speaks about the advent of Platonism as the work of providence. He also thinks of his own recovery of Platonism in these terms. And I think this is more than just rhetorical hyperbole. Ficino is convinced of the tremendous importance of reviving Platonic philosophy Given the fact that the learned world of the medieval Latin West didn't have access to the Platonic dialogues except for the Phaedo, the Mino, parts of the Timaeus and parts of the Republic. And even the manuscripts of these works weren't widely obtainable. The availability of Plato's dialogues in Ficino's 1484 printed edition can in no way be overestimated. The rediscovery of the Platonic corpus had an impact over the course of the following centuries in all intellectual and cultural spheres not merely confined to a doxographical knowledge of a series of doctrines relating, for example, to the immortality of the soul or the theory of forms. Students of Plato now had access to the dialogues themselves, which revealed to Renaissance audiences the rich ancient landscape of myths, allegories, philosophical arguments, etymologies, fragments of poetry and philosophy, um, aspects of ancient religious practices, concepts in mathematics and natural philosophy, and the dialogic nature of Plato's dialogues themselves. So with the exception of a very small but ever-growing group of Renaissance scholars who not only could read ancient Greek but also had access to the manuscripts of Plato's dialogues, most readers in the Latin West encountered Plato's texts through Ficino's translations. Today there are only three extant manuscripts that contain the complete platonic corpus. The astounding fact that Ficino had two of them at his disposal, as well as another complete manuscript that is now lost to us, as w- and the fact that he was in correspondence with the Greek uh, emigre, Cardinal Bessarion who possessed the third complete text that still survives today. All of this underscores that even if other philosophers and scholars made vital contributions to our knowledge of Plato, Ficino was the key intermediary between Greek and Latin, as well as between manuscript and print. As Ficino likes to say, he gave voice to Plato, as well as to various ancient traditions and frameworks to interpret uh, Plato's dialogues. So what about Ficino's philosophical and theological writings, moving away from his work as a translator? Ficino wrote an 18-volume magnum opus entitled The Platonic Theology or On the Immortality of the Soul, a, a brilliantly ambitious work whose title seems to say it all. A number of writings on uh, religion, including a work called the De Cristiana Religione, numerous tracts, sermons, and homilies, a commentary on St. Paul's epistles, works on optics, including the De Sole, the Quid Cid Lumen, and the De Lumine, a few astrological tracks, medical works that were Renaissance bestsellers, including one that have been recently translating on Twitter during quarantine, the uh, Concilio Contro la Pestilencia, um, and uh, another work, De Vita libres Tres, which um, this last one um, is really the foundation to Renaissance theories on uh, melancholy, Saturnine genius, and astral influences. And um, I've, based on, again, manuscript annotations by Ficino, um, I've been able to um, uh, demonstrate that this, this work originally began as a commentary on Plotinus's uh, Aeneids, especially regarding the questions of prayer, but it eventually developed into its own autonomous work that incorporated a lot of material on optic, optical and astrological theories, and importantly, Neoplatonic notions of prayer um, and of theurgy from um, this late ancient Syrian Neoplatonist that I've mentioned once before, once or twice before, Iamblichus. Ficino was also a gifted musician who wrote on music theory and harmonies and accompanied his hymns by playing and improvising on what his contemporaries called an Orphic lyre. Ficino was also one of the first philosophers to follow the humanist trend spearheaded by Petrarch of collecting and publishing his letters. His 12 books of correspondence written to humanists, philosophers, theologians, artists, poets, statesmen, scientists, kings, monastic leaders, cardinals, and popes reveal that he was a central node to what would eventually come to be known as the Republic of Letters. And the image you see here is actually a deluxe manuscript of Ficino's letters that um, he sent to uh, the King Matthias Corvinus, the King of Hungary. Ficino's fame was great and he often complained of a backlog in his inbox. For example, his letter survives in which he bemoans the fact that nearly all of Europe was waiting on letters for him. In his letters, Ficino cultivated networks but also he tried to develop what I call a platonic persona. Um, He honed philosophical arguments of his interlocutors and he tried to develop also a platonic style of writing in Latin. Many of the letters are short philosophical works in their own right and are filled with elegant images, witty philosophical wordplay, and oratorical games. His letters were often protreptic, that is, they aimed at turning the thoughts of his interlocutors towards platonic questions, serving as it were, as mirrors through which his addressees could begin to know themselves, as Ficino would like to say. So given Ficino's extensive translation work, it won't surprise you to learn that Ficino wrote a lot of exegetical material. He wrote introductions commentaries and summaries on a lot of the translate a lot of the works that he translated um, from the time he first translated his first 10 dialogues for cosimo de medici basically until his death ficino was always working interpreting the platonic corpus in one way or another some of his commentaries for example in the philebus underwent multiple revisions that went on his whole life um, i I won't go too much in detail, but I'd like to say a few things about Ficino's understanding of Plato, his his approach towards interpreting the dialogues themselves. First, Ficino is in all likelihood the first philosopher in the Latin West, at least since antiquity, to interpret Plato's works as a single corpus. Although he makes a few important arguments to explain Plato's development as a philosopher and writer, his approach to the corpus is largely a unitarian approach. That is, Instead of following co- what we might consider to be common trends now, and especially Anglo-American scholarship of breaking down Plato's corpus into periods of composition, uh, what we might call an early Socratic period of dealing with arguments in ethics, a middle period when Plato developed his most famous doctrines, like the theories of recollection, the forms or the immortality of the soul, and the final late period when Plato has sought to have revised some of these positions so instead of this approach, Ficino's hermeneutics to um, the Platonic corpus tries to look at the corpus as a unified whole. So this structural method is inspired by these ancient Platonists, um, primarily late ancient Platonists, but also what we sometimes call um, middle Platonists. This drive to draw out the philosophical, to draw out a philosophical order from the Platonic corpus is evident in his first translation of 10 Dialogues for Cosimo de' Medici. He both arranges the dialogues in a particular philosophical order and writes interpretive summaries to direct readers on the correct path of interpretation. This approach is also evident in his later complete edition of 1484 that he dedicated to Lorenzo de' Medici. And even in a projected definitive edition, which he never had a chance to complete um, since both he and his patron Lorenzo had died before he could get the work out. um, But the, the, the plan for this magnum opus survives Um, The corpus was supposed to be ordered, according to what Ficino calls a universal order, culminating in uh, Plato's Parmenides, uh, since according to Ficino, it taught on the nature of the one and followed uh, just below it um, uh, with the sophist, because it taught about uh, being and not being. So here we see a particular metaphysical aspect of Ficino's interpretation, insofar as he prioritizes this notion of the one above being. We might say a heenology over an ontology. We can spend another quick moment on a passage from Ficino's preface to Lorenzo that we already began reading to understand how Ficino uh, interprets the dialogues. For our moment, before pouring out, de- for our Plato, before pouring out divine oracles, lest what is sacred becomes shared with the profane, leads the rational soul of his listeners through a triadic path to the summit, from purgation through resolution and conversion. On account of this, one can read much in Plato that pertains to purging the rational soul of errors, much in turn pertaining to separating the intellect from the senses, and most on conversion first to itself, then to God, the author of all things. And once converted solemnly to him, as though he were the son, then they're happily illuminated with the desired rays of truth. In these words, we see Ficino employing a tripartite Neoplatonic order of virtues from a cathartic purging of errors, which Ficino thinks readers would have encountered when studying uh, dialogues when Socrates refutes sophists, which leads to a protractic encouragement to pursue philosophy, which Ficino would have pointed out in um, dialogue where Socrates encourages youth, uh, a youthful crowd to train their minds and engage in philosophy followed by an examination of theoretical philosophy when Plato turns to questions of cosmology, metaphysics, or theology. To understand Plato's philosophy, Ficino is actively employing a Neoplatonic triad of principles of conversion towards the one or God, emanating from it or descending in descent or proceeding towards it in ascent, and of remaining in its presence in contemplation or even in uniting with it. All of this maps onto his understanding of the dialogues, looking at passages where the dialogues either refute, exhort or instruct. And we find um, in all of his interpretations of the Platonic dialogues, this seems to be all being guided by a greater goal, which he thinks Platonism tries to teach, which is assimilating to God, what we might call theosis or uniting uh, with the one he 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 might call henosis, right? so as a second, pass- a second key aspect of Ficino's interpretation of Plato that I want to highlight is his use of uh, uh, what we might call technically prosopopoeia, That is Fici- how Ficino analyzes um, when Plato employs different personae in the dialogues for different philosophical purposes. For example, here's what Ficino uh, says about this in his uh, biography of Plato. Um, What Plato said in his own voice in the letters, the laws and the eponymous, he desires to be held as absolutely certain. What he argues in other books in the mouths of Socrates, Timaeus, Parmenides and Zeno, he wants to be held as having the appearance of truth. So Ficino's of the opinion that that, that Plato uses different personae for different purposes. Um, uh, Socrates might be an obvious case, but he also looks at passages where he thinks Plato is employing Pythagorean perspectives on philosophy. And finally, moments where Plato seems to be speaking in his own voice, um, where he drops the mask, as it were, in his letters. Um, And when he employs another mask, uh, that of the Athenian stranger, the anonymous Athenian stranger in the laws and the epitimus. So a third feature of Ficino's understanding of Plato has to do with his philosophical approach towards providence, which we've already encountered. So in the opening words that I first read to you, which are in fact the first words of Ficino's preface to Plato, Ficino proclaims Plato's providential and even soteriological role for religion and humanity. To quote again, and thus in an established time, omnipotent gods sent down from above the divine rational soul of Plato. Once again, I'll refla- refrain from giving a lengthy explanation of Ficino's rather sophisticated thoughts on providence, but point out a few important aspects about this. First. Ficino's understanding of the history of philosophy is intertwined with the history of religion. Ficino searches for the ancient vanishing point of these traditions, exploring what he thinks to be the limit of the written word in these traditions, namely Chaldean oracles, Orphic hymns, Hermetic wisdom, and Pythagorean philosophy and mathematics. He takes these often pseudopicrific texts as the first written documents of a pre-existing, or, of pre-existing oral traditions of something like an ur-philosophical religious thought. On foundations of Iamblichus and Proclus, but with important embellishments from another Byzantine Platonist, Gismistus Pletho, Ficino constructs a succession of spokespersons for this ancient lineage, best known as a Theologia or an ancient theology which in its most famous formulation consists of Zoroaster, Hermes, Orpheus, Aglauthemus, Pythagoras, and Plato. So who are these people? The first three sages are representative of universal traditions, which like a medieval T-map of the globe seems to be universal in scope. The oracular Zoroaster emerges from Eastern Chaldean religions as their spokesperson. The philosophical priestly and royal hermes from african egyptian wisdom and the priests who attribute their writings to this person or this god and the mythical orpheus from greece and europe who becomes a poet theologian of the olympian deities and of the mortality of the soul Aglaophemus is the crucial intermediary who's responsible for initiating Pythagoras into the Orphic mysteries at a place called Libethra, a holy site in, a birthplace, in the birthplace of Orpheus at the foothill of Mount Olympus that was known to be sacred to the Muses. So who is this shadowy person um, who's connecting uh, Pythagoras to the prior religious traditions? Well, he first appears in the writings of uh, Iamblichus, specifically in the De Secta Pythagorica, this ancient Syrian Platonist. In this work, Iamblichus seeks to establish Platonism as an exemplary way of doing philosophy, insofar as it offers a way to integrate and unify um, a plurality of religions. And to understand how Iamblichus does this, I gave us a quotation we could look at. In general, they say Pythagoras was a zealous admirer of Orpheus' style and rhetorical art and honored the gods in a manner nearly like Orpheus, setting them up indeed in, bron- in the bronze of statues, not bound down with their human appearances, but with those divine rights of gods who comprehend and take thought for all things and who have a substance and a form similar to the all. He proclaimed their purificatory rites and what are called mystic initiations, and had most accurate knowledge of these matters. And here's an important part. Moreover, they say that he made a synthesis of divine philosophy and worship of the gods, having learned some things from the Orphics, others from the Egyptian priests, some from the Chaldeans, et cetera, et cetera. terminology here is far from random. For Iamblichus, Pythagoreanism is something like a synthesis of multiple traditions that mirrors the unity of the multiplicity of beings in both the intelligible world and the cosmic order. In Platonic terms, Pythagoras applied what we could call an aphoretic dialectical method to the traditions he encountered, analyzing each of them in order to then then synthesize common traits, which he distilled into sayings, symbols, and rituals. This also suggests to Ficino that philosophy is born as a way to think about religious traditions, something he holds dear to. Having learned from the wisest traditions, Pythagoras, according to Iamblichus, became something like an intermediary guide to help other philosophers in turn become godlike and unite or come into contact with the divine. Iamblichus also associates Pythagorean mathematics and its way of life to a specific Orphic religious tradition, even making the claim which Ficino and then other contemporaries of Ficino will later repeat that Pythagoras was initiated into the Orphic mysteries by this strange fellow called Aglaiaphronos. From the Orphic tradition, Iamblichus explains Pythagoras learned that divine images aren't anthropomorphic statues, but divine symbols. It probably either of mathematicals or of either higher noetic forms. Pythagoreanism thus teaches that we should not make the gods look like our physical bodies, but that we should strive to make ourselves take the form of these higher intellectual realities. In other words, Pythagoreanism, according to Iamblichus, teaches um, us to follow the example of Pythagoras and form oneself through mathematics and philosophy as though, I quote, forming ones own statue. So these theories of philosophical symbolism also left a real deep impression in Ficino's understanding of, of, of both ancient philosophy, but I would say religion in general. This brings me to a second aspect that which I want to highlight about Plato and Providence. Um, Namely, that Plato is, according to Ficino, the first proper writer in this tradition, and it's all the more remarkable, according to Ficino, that his writings were so inspired by oratorical beauty, so much so that his artistry, according to Ficino, had to be part of a providential plan of a caring God whose own love infused Plato's own philosophy of love. So today, Ficino is often recognized as one of the most important sources for Renaissance philosophies of love, but Ficino would not have thought of himself as breaking new grounds. Instead, he saw himself as part of these ancient traditions of love, understood as an intense desire to unite with the beauty that emerged from the one. So moving along from a more general introduction on Ficino and Plato to to the particular theme of our series, Reason and Beauty in the Renaissance, I'd like to spend the rest of my time today examining a case study of how Ficino understands reason and beauty in one of his most famous works, the De Amore, or On Love, his own dialogic commentary on Plato's symposium. So Socrates' physical appearance, as you can see here on the slide, snub-nosed and resembling Silenus, the leader of the satyrs, has always been considered peculiar. Philosophers as early as Xenophon in his own symposium, and then Plato in his Theotetus, for example, were compelled to interpret his appearance as expressing something about his philosophy. The most elaborate comparison of Socrates to Satyr's is, of course, Alcibiades' ironic encomium of Socrates as Silenus or Marcius at the end of Plato's symposium. It's at the climax in Socrates' speech that a drunken Alcibiades bursts into the house accompanied by flute girls crowned with ivy and violets like the god Dionysus himself and blurts out, good evening, gents, I'm wasted. Can I join you? Alcibiades changed the rules of the party game. Instead of praising Eros as all the other dinner companions had done, he decided to praise Socrates by painting his portrait as one of two satyrs, Silenus or Marcius. He says, you see, the satyr would enchant men with, pow- with power that he projected from his mouth through instruments. And still today, anyone can play his music on the flute, for those melodies that Olympus would perform, I say, were learned from Marcius. Ficino's commentary to the Symposium, or the De Amore, which he finished in 1469, is the first work since antiquity to take note of the philosophical implications of the identification of Alcibiades' portrait of Socrates as Silenus with Socrates' own portrayal of Eros. Ficino's De Amore is an imitative performance. That is, it's not a typical commentary insofar as Ficino stages it as a literary banquet of friends celebrating Plato's birthday. As part of the evening's entertainment, each speaker was tasked to imitate Plato's characters. The De D'amore as a whole also has a compositional order according to which each of the first five speeches direct the audience towards the goal of experiencing transformative love and beauty in order to assimilate to God. Though not necessarily just a Christian God and we can talk about that in the question period if we want. Giovanni Cavalcanti lays the groundwork by introducing a platonic triad of causes and a tripartite understanding of the cosmos. Ficino likes threes as you can imagine. Uh, the neoplatonic principle of conversion again from the triad of conversion procession and remaining that we already saw all to explain in the first speech in the symposium by phaedrus he glosses the first quotation by phaedrus of hesiod that eros is the oldest of gods with the help of plotinus love should be understood as the first act of the first divinity below the one god that is responsible for the creation of the first being and intellect since the one is beyond being he explains, it's akin to a pure activity that radiates light. As this light turns back onto its source, the Latin says, addem convertitur, it is substantialized into the first being and intellect, which further reflects the splendor of this divine light. Ficino structures the process according to this triad that we saw, but speaks about it in terms of a conversion an illumination, and illumination in the final perfection. Cavalcanti explains that the first conversion Is love or the god Eros himself. Through a line-by-line commentary on Plato's second letter, his interpretation of the second speech by Pausanias continues to explain love's ability to convert the lover to become godlike. The final two chapters of the speech exhort the audience to transform and perfect themselves through love. In his interpretation of the third speech in the symposium by the Dr. Eryximachus. Cavalcanti adopts conventions from Petrarchic writing, explaining how love governs all the arts and sciences. Christopher Landino, Christopher Landino steps onto the stage afterwards to interpret uh, the next speech by Aristophanes, the, 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 the playwright. And he explains that love's conversion affects us by turning the light of our innate virtues uh, towards the divine light of our lost halves or, or infused virtues. Carlo Marsupini interprets Um, the next speech by Agathon and argues for the transcendental convertibility of beauty and goodness, uh, meaning what can be said of beauty can be said of goodness and vice versa. But he prioritizes goodness as the source of beauty, which is nothing other, he says, than the iridescence of the good itself refracted by all beings below it. The final two speeches in Ficinos de Amore present line by line commentaries on Socrates' portrait of Eros and Alcibiades' drunken portrait of Socrates. Since these two speeches identify the traits of Eros and Socrates with one another, they set a capstone to the De Amore by presenting a singular portrait of Socrates as something like a deified philosopher who can now be called by the name of Eros. By imitating Socrates, Ficino submits to his readers one can fulfill the promise of Socrates' virtue ethics and find true happiness in participating in truth, beauty, and goodness. So before Alcibiades arrived drunk and unannounced to interrupt the dinner party, the guests who had unusually decided to abstain from drinking had taken turns delivering speeches that had one thing in common, namely they all praised Eros as a god. When Socrates' turn came up, he recounted a conversation that he had with an otherwise unknown priestess called Diotima, who taught him that Eros isn't a god, but a demon or a daimon—that That is, an intermediary being between humans and gods that delivers messages to and fro between them by way of magic and divination. Plato is insistent, however, that despite being of a lesser rank than a god, Eros's power is nearly supreme for the lover initiated into Eros's mysteries will learn to ascend from loving beautiful bodies to the experience of beauty itself. Interestingly, Ficino revises Plato's position in the De Amore by putting forward a philosophical dilemma, stating that both propositions, A, Eros is a god, and B, Eros is a demon, are equally true, I quote, although for different reasons. So then which is it, Ficino? The inevitable conclusion to this dilemma, as I'll argue, is also a third proposition, C, that eros is a man. Ficino thinks that all three propositions are true. He begins his explanation by comparing the human figure to a lodestone or a magnet. When magnetic stones transmit a certain quality to iron, Ficino states that we don't hesitate to call this force of attraction magnetic since the force resides in the lodestone itself. But since the force also resides in the iron that, attract, that it attracts, we can also call it what he calls a ferret force or a force of iron. Similarly, Ficino explains that heat as the physical force that ignites linen when it comes into contact with fire can be said to be present in both fire and linen. Ficino then compares these natural examples to man. The human figure, who's often the most beautiful in appearance and account of an interior goodness, happily given to it by God, transfuses a ray of this brilliance through the eyes into the rational soul of those who gaze at it. The rational soul attracted by the spark as though it were a certain kind of fishing hook hurries towards what attracts it. So to summarize Ficino's position, he argues that Eros is a god insofar as the force of attraction is in in the beloved's beauty, but also that Eros is a demon insofar as the force of attraction is also present in the lover once it has received. Um, the beautiful form of the beloved figure. An aesthetic theory of beautiful splendor lies at the core of Ficino's explanation of love's deification. Love's action at a distance functions according to geometric and optical theories of linear radiation, whereby love is understood as the force of beauty's splendor, communicated like a ray of light traveling on a linear vector. Ficino's aesthetic theory, moreover, doesn't simply explain beauty's theory as bodies reflecting and transmitting rays of sensible light his aesthetics fundamentally explain that all sensible beauty reflects and transmits rays of intelligible light. In short, Ficino's aesthetics of splendor is grounded in a metaphysics of participation that allows for multiple forms of mediation between sensible and intelligible um, and leaves open possibilities for the deification of man through beauty itself. But to be more precise about how Ficino arrived at this, we can say that his aesthetic, aesthetic theory Um, and his theories of love are beholden to uh, Proclus, insofar as Proclus identifies the head of different uh, what we call noetic series with ancient Greek gods. So what do we mean by this? In Proclus' framework, Socrates is the exemplary philosopher who's climbed up a particular chain of a sensible being to its intelligible form, its noetic form, and has touched it, in this case, eros the highest being in this particular series. The ascent of Diotima and Socrates described, the ascent that Diotima and Socrates describe in the symposium becomes a deification of the philosopher as the god Eros. As the philosopher who has completed the circuit of ascent and descent, Socrates retains his identification of Eros since his demon is the intermediary that connects the whole series. Ficino therefore isn't just simply revising Plato's definition of the philosopher and Eros, He's also revising the meaning of Socrates' personal demon insofar as his arguments in the De Amore require him to conclude that Socrates' demon, Eros, isn't simply a demon, but also a god. That is, in fact, exactly what Proclus argues in his commentary to the first Alcibiades, which I won't read for you here, but you can see and look it up. Proclus concludes a section from his commentary by saying that Socrates' demon um, can be considered to be a god, but also can uh, we can say the same thing for the same reasons about Plotinus's personal demon. Ficino's reasoning to deify Socrates' demon as the god of Eros and the De Amore follows Proclus's logic to the letter. It is, therefore, unsurprising to see him arrive at a similar conclusion, like Proclus, about Plotinus's demon, that it too is a god. He's explicit about this conclusion appropriately enough in his commentary to Plotinus's Aeneids 3.4, uh, which is uh, Plotinus's work on our personal demon. And it's worth remembering that um, Porphyry, Plotinus's disciple, relates in his life of Plotinus that Plotinus was supposedly moved to compose this treatise after an Egyptian priest disclosed that Plotinus's personal um, guardian demon wasn't just a demon, but the highest class known as a god. So this is what Ficino writes in his commentary to uh, Plotinus, which uh, you can read now in Professor Stephen Gersh's translation. So Socrates' demon is a god, but it's also an intellectual god, according to Ficino. According to Cavalcanti's interpretation of Phaedrus' first speech in the the symposium, the first being's first conversion to the one god. This is what Socrates has come up and touched. It is this first conversion of love that substantializes the intellect, the first being below the one, into a being. In the third oration from the Diamore, Ficino cites one of the most Proclean passages from the Corpus Dionysiacum, the work by Pseudodionysius the Areopagite, known as the De Divinis Nominibus, or On the Divine Names, which explains that Eros has three kinds of movements. To quote Ficino, quoting Pseudodionysius, who's actually quoting his own master Hierotheus, therefore, Who could doubt that Eros is in fact inborn in all and for all? This is what Dionysus the Areopagite writes in his book on the divine names, expressing in his own words what his master Hierotheus conceived in his mind. And he quotes Dionysus here. We will call Eros, whether divine, angelic, spiritual, animal, or natural, what we understand as a certain unifying, and grafting power which moves providence from superiors to inferiors, unites equals with one another for mutual social communion and finally persuades the inferior to convert towards what is better and more sublime. All of this functions according to to Proclas's notion that love is a conversion that unfolds into three stages from purgation to illumination then perfection. This is the love that Socrates' demon shows towards Socrates and that Socrates in turn shows towards Alcibiades, according to Proclus. In fact, in the last passage that I just quoted for the De Amore, is concerned to explain this very kind of loving transmission of knowledge between master and disciple, not just between Socrates and Alcibiades, but also between the successors of the different platonic academies and between Pseudo Hierotheus and Pseudo Dionysus, these two um, uh, uh, ancient masters of, uh, of theology um, that Ficino quotes. Ficino becomes, uh, Socrates, according to Ficino, becomes something like a transfigured philosopher, incarnating the principle of conversion to the one. Following Proclus's logic, just as the sun is the first genus of luminary beings, all of whom are sun-like heliotropes insofar as they turn towards the sun, the source of light and life, Think of sunflowers, for example, so too Socrates, as the first in the genus of philosophers, inspires philosophical conversion and ascent in his disciples towards the source of being. In Ficino's exegesis, Socrates is a lover who has followed the god Eros in a mythical cavalcade of gods in order to see beauty's shining brilliance. Having returned to Earth, Socrates becomes the beloved, glowing with the splendor of divine beauty to lure other potential lovers. Like Phaedrus, one of Ficino, one of Socrates' interlocutors to imitate him in turn. Ficino is struck by Plato's aesthetics of light and splendor and particularly by claims in the Phaedrus um, that wisdom itself cannot be seen with our eyes but if its clear image could be seen, it would cause the most terrifying and powerful love. These passages filter into his reading of Socrates' ironic beauty in the De Amore where Ficino presents him as the very image of loving wisdom. For while Plato holds that wisdom itself cannot be seen, he also says that it is a superlative property of beauty alone to be most visible and even most radiant and therefore most beloved. It is charming to see that Ficino even finds the identification of the most beautiful with the most beloved in Plato's own person and artistry as a writer, to quote Ficino here, in his radiance, Plato gave birth to his first child, that is the dialogue, the Phaedrus, And it was itself almost entirely poetical and radiant. It is a very beautiful dialogue. This most beautiful man, the worthiest of all her love, wrote simultaneously about beauty and love, so that quite properly he then brought forth the rest of his children too, and they were full of loveliness and grace. In this brief statement, Ficino takes Socrates' own account from the Phaedrus of the superlative beauty um, as uh, the identification of the most radiant and the most beloved, and he applies it to Socrates' disciple, and the beautiful splendor of his art, his dialogues. The philosopher becomes an intermediary, according to Ficino. Having touched eros, he can thereafter channel the power of this substantial form onto others. According to Ficino, this is the magical aesthetics of Socrates' divine irony. It functions like an aesthetic Trojan horse. Beneath Socrates' human figure, beneath his ugly, silenic face of a satyr, which is received by others through their senses, and inscribed onto their imagination. Beneath this is the true beauty of his eternal daimonic self, that is the figure of the god Eros, which is inscribed onto his di- disciples' intellects and quite literally transforms their inner self by the splendor of these hidden rays of intelligible light. In technical terms, Socrates' substantial form acts on others through an occult quality that transforms their faculties and activities. But in more general terms, you could say that Socrates' care for his disciples is a manifestation of providential love. Ficino even conceives of Plato's artistry in these terms. Socrates' form, having been inscribed by Plato into words, can thereafter inscribe itself onto his readers' rational souls and call them back to the intelligible. In other words, it's not just the living historical Socrates who is a Silenus. Plato's irony in his books is a Silenus too, which also communicates an inner providential love. Having been, having been converted by Socrates to a life of philosophy, Plato too, according to Ficino, became a most beloved and most beautiful philosopher. In turn, Plato continued the same succession, something like a philosophical laying of hands, projecting this chain of reflected divine splendor onto his own disciples through his presence in art. The figure of the Socratic philosopher is this a guiding thread in Ficino's understanding of the history of philosophy and religion. Love connects all bonds between masters and disciples in these chains of succession. The identification of Socrates and Eros stands at at the head of the series. The schema is terribly Proclean. And it's a shame that Ficino never wrote a commentary on Pseudodionysus' other important work, the Ecclesiastical Hierarchy, since in that work, uh, we find a very similar structure in Pseudodionysus' explanation of apostolic session apostolic succession and priestly consecration, with the obvious caveat that Dionysus places Christ as love at the head of both the angelic and ecclesiastical hierarchies. So Ficino collects parallel references from ancient traditions of radiant countenances as signs of theophanies and transfigurations. Obvious sources for Ficino are the synoptic gospels, account of Christ's transfiguration with Elijah and Moses on the mount where Christ's face shone brightly like the sun and his clothes dazzled like white light in order to announce Christ's nature as a divine person to his disciples. Other important sources for him are the accounts of Moses' radiant face when he descended from Mount Sinai and Elijah's climb up Mount Carmel as well as Paul's experience of divine glory during his rapture to the third heavens. And this is a beautiful illumination that you see of Ficino's own um, uh, work on St. Paul's uh, rapture. Ficino understands each of these events as an experience of divine beauty, whereby the radiance or splendor of a deified countenance communicates a luminosity, a lumen, that it has received from an intelligible source of divine light, a looks. Vecino once again, decipher these Judeo-Christian theophanies according to platonic aesthetics of splendor and metaphysics of something like a vertical participation in the divine. But by the same token, his remarks about Socrates' powerful effect on his disciples begin to outline the the contours of, of a broader theory of conversion, according to which souls are also converted by witnessing or coming into contact with the reflected horizontal splendor of these savior figures across time. Such a philosophy of love helps Ficino explain how Moses, Elijah, Christ, and Paul, as well as Zoroaster, Pythagoras, Plato, Socrates, and Plotinus had an immense influence converting disciples. Here we see how Ficino's philosophizing about religion seems to happen sometimes outside of any theology that might have strong demarcations over what counts as true religion as within the boundaries only of Christian revelation. Ficino writes the De Amore explicitly in what um, we might call a platonic or what his contemporaries might have considered a pagan platonic authorial voice insofar as the only explicit christian sources are also platonists and he has in mind Dionysus and Augustine in particular Um, uh, there's a lot of implicit christian references but i'm talking about explicit ones so these theories help Ficino explain the philosophical aesthetics. They're at work both in Plato's artistry and in Socrates' person, but they're also equally important for his understanding of the transfiguring light of Christ, the Lumen Christi. Um, and now I think I'll uh, transition to the final portion of my uh, talk on Ficino, which I've been asked to do, which is to present you some um, resources to work with uh, Ficino and to, to familiarize yourself with Ficino. So um, I didn't want to, to, to provide you with too many articles, um, but because they're usually behind paywalls, but uh, uh, these are two free resources online. Uh, there, there aren't many good short introductions to Ficino's uh, uh, writings and his thought and his life, Um, but probably I would recommend everyone who's interested in learning, uh, uh, was just beginning to learn about Ficino, to turn to uh, uh, Christopher Celenza's introduction um, uh, or his entry on Marcelo Ficino for the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and then familiarize yourself as well too with the uh, website, um, which is unfortunately is better in French and Italian than it is in English, uh, but still has valuable resources of the um, Société Marcel Ficin, or the uh, Marsilio-Ficino Society, run by um, a great uh, Ficino scholar and Renaissance scholar and philosopher, Stéphane Toussaint. As for secondary sources, um, I said I wouldn't give you um, a art- list of articles, but I point here, you can see Academia, that's the journal published by the Marsilio-Ficino Society, La Revue de la Société Marcel Ficin, Um, And there's some uh, excellent resources there too. Uh, Next to that, I won't say much, um, but I'll point out uh, because I was told it would be false humility if I didn't include it, uh, my own book Plato's Persona, which is specifically geared towards um, Ficino's understanding of Plato and Platonism. Um, uh, Off to the sides of, uh, on the left, there's um, a really classic work by Paul Oscar Christeller, whose um, uh, work um, so many Ficino scholars, uh, uh, have, their, their own work depends on. Um, uh, Christeller first wrote this book in German, but. Uh, it, it was delayed until the seventies because of the second world war. Um, an English uh, a version, an English translation was produced in 1953, that is still very informative and valuable to read. Uh, but Chris Teller then revised it in 1988 in Italian. Um, and uh, he made a point of saying that's the definitive version. But um, for those of you who can't read Italian, uh, you can still learn quite a lot from the English and I would recommend that too. Um, To the far right at the top is a work that is um, very erudite by Michael Allen, who's uh, the great translator of uh, Ficino's commentaries. Um, Another um, important scholar of Renaissance philosophy, Brian Copenhaver, once said um, at a conference while introducing Michael Allen that nobody's done more for Ficino um, other than his parents, so Michael Allen is very important as well too, and that's he, he's distilled a lot of his findings on Platonism there, and of course um, our next speaker in the series is um, it has to be represented here too, and her work on Marsilio Ficino it includes a lot of really interesting work on Ficino's uh, metaphysics and and uh, imaginative thinking um, in general. Um, for uh, more of a background on Ficino's um, uh, life and times and to look at it, at Ficino's place um, in the intellectual history of the Italian Renaissance, I'd point you to another work by Christopher Christopher Celenza, The Intellectual World of the Italian Renaissance. There's a good chapter on Ficino in this book, uh, but there's uh, chapters on the humanist movement in general with the strong emphasis uh, on philosophy. And um, two other important works, uh, James Hankins Um, Plato in the Italian Renaissance is a two volume work on not just on Ficino, but on the reception of Plato in the Italian Renaissance, um, followed by Arthur Field's uh, work, um, The Origins of the Platonic Academy in Florence. And they actually have an interesting debate on uh, whether or not there is such a thing as the Platonic Academy of Florence that uh, they, um, um, they devoted a few articles to. So if you make it that far, it's an interesting read. Finally, for translations of Ficino's works, um, Valerie Reese uh, has led a team for a number of years uh, in England um, to uh, translate uh, all of Ficino's letters. Um, he wrote twelve volumes of them, and they did a, a great job translating them into English. And it's a really wonderful resource. Um, the two, uh, so I put two translations of. Um, the D'amore, the work I just spoke about, one in French uh, by Raymond Marcel, really a classic translation and edition of, Lent, of the text. Um, followed by a Sears Jane, who did um, uh, um, an English translation of the text. Um, and then to the right of that is Caskin uh, Clark's uh, English translation of the three books on life, dealing with questions of medicine, astrology, optics, philosophy, religion interesting works. Um, At the bottom, the three blue books, if you're not familiar with the series, uh, the Itati Renaissance Library is a really wonderful series that tries to do for works of Latin text what um, the Loeb has done for Loeb series that uh, has done for uh, ancient Greek and ancient Latin texts. So the, the, the Harvard Loeb series in, in green and red, We now have the blue series for Neo-Latin texts from the Renaissance. And um, a number of excellent uh, translations of Ficino's works has, have come out primarily of his commentaries, as you can see here by Michael Allen, um, by Maude Van Halen and by Stephen Gersh. Um, so I would encourage you to familiarize yourself with, with uh, the, the series in general. Um, in addition to these particular works. And then if you really dive into Ficino, uh, what is still absolutely unavoidable is to work with um, the Latin text. And uh, here the, there's a new series um, that's run by Maurizio Campanelli, Sebastiano Gentile, and Christopher Cholenza called Ficinos Novos, published by Aragno in Torino, where they publish really um, critical editions of the Latin text, establishing the text, really essential work that still needs to be done for so much of Renaissance writing. Um, medieval writing as well too, I would say. Um, And also this other work uh, to the right, Ficino's Letters, which Gentile has been uh, editing slowly, uh, carefully, um, and diligently for a number of years. He's done the first two volumes of the 12 volumes. So that's all I have for introductory material. Um, I suppose I can take myself off of uh, screen sharing at this moment. And, Thank you. stop speaking and open up to questions.
1: Thank you so much, Professor uh, Robichaux for this very uh, robust, very interesting uh, uh, presentation on this uh, apparently obscure to most of us uh, figure, but who's had such a big impact. Most of us, when we go through our education, read some of the great books, The Apology, uh, uh, The Republic, uh, some of these great works of Plato, the Aeneids of Plotinus, uh, we imagine that this sort of idea of, of, of Greece and of, of classical Greece was available to many people, but it sounded like from what you were saying that this is a, a relatively new recovery with Ficino. It, it does, is, it, is, that, is that basically accurate?
2: Yeah, in, in the long history of humanity, relatively new, absolutely. I've, I suppose 1484. I still think from my perspective, that's still relatively recent, um, but I might I might feel um, a little biased in that regard. Um, that's right, and and I suppose a, an important point that I, I'd like to get across about Ficino's work as a translator is that he really uh, cultivated a role, something like a gatekeeper um, to the Platonic tradition in the 15th century. Um, it, he did so much work, and we're not talking about translating a couple of dialogues, there's a number of his contemporary humanists did, Leonardo Bruni most famously, but, but DeCembrio and others. Um, uh, he translated the complete corpus. I mean, most people don't even read all of Plato. He translated all of it, wrote commentaries, and then he did more. He did all of Plotinus, all 54 books of it. And then, you know, he did a lot of He, you know, It's really important work um, for his day. And if you really think of the fact that, as I, you know, I think this drives the point home, um, you, we only have three manuscripts today that contained all of Plato's dialogues. Um, it, he had three of them, one of which we've now lost. I mean, there are other manuscripts, of course, many other manuscripts that survive of portions of the platonic corpus or individual dialogues. But um, this idea of the, the complete corpus is a kind of unified whole as Ficino conceives of Plato's writings, right? only survives in, in, in three manuscripts. That's, um, for such a canonical author like Plato, that's um, something to keep in mind, right?
1: Indeed, it's just, it's just amazing when, when one considers this long-term Platonic tradition, this sort of this, this gushing in of, of, of some of the original texts, which we had been, been avoided. But we have several questions. You began your presentation very nicely and very interestingly on, on the preface which presents a kind of view of providence and how divine providence interacts and in, with, with human reason, right? In, the, in this sort of aesthetic way in the soul of, of, of Plato, a rational way as well. We've had several questions about the interaction of what we might say Greek wisdom with, with well, perhaps this is the wrong way of characterizing it, but, but this is a classical way of Greek wisdom and Christian faith uh, we, one question is on the role of Moses. How do, what role does Moses play in the genealogy of, uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, the Prisca Theologica, as, as uh, our attendant Thomas asks.
2: Excellent. A good question from Thomas. Um, well, Ficino uh, writes quite a bit about Moses, um, uh, not, not in terms of a sustained um, work um, on, on Exodus, for example, as is... His uh, contemporary um, Pico della Mirandola um, writes on, on, on the Old Testament much more extensively. Um, but, um, but Ficino thinks of Moses first and foremost as one of these uh, 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 transfigured soteriological figures, as uh, someone who Um, uh, ascended a mount and uh, who's experienced divine uh, light and um, was therefore um, instrumental in shaping uh, the course of of human history and the history of religion providentially as a result. Um, He, uh, on a a number of occasions, uh, Ficino compares Plato to Moses There's a famous quotation from antiquity by the Pythagoreanizing uh, Platonist Numenius, right, Um, saying, um, what what else is Plato but um, Moses speaking Attic Greek. Um, And Ficino quotes this positively, and he um, speaks about uh, this kind of comparison of Plato had something like a similar role for the development of, of human history and, and, and religious thought in general as Moses did um, so that that's what I would say would be the beginning mm-hmm. um, but the interesting thing about Ficino is that it's not just um, the, the Hebrew tradition that's interesting as a precursor to um, the revelation of Christianity and it's not also just the, uh, the the Greek tradition that he points to as a source to Orpheus as a kind of precursor, he also points to what I think I, it could be considered universal sources of wisdom, pointing also to what he thinks are an, an Eastern equivalent of, of uh, you know the, the Chaldean oracles, which aren't or are actually um, probably the work of, 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 of what, which are the work of a, of a second century, Dergist um, and aren't actually as old as Ficino thinks, um, and also uh, these these writings uh, that. Uh, uh, we fall under the corpus, or known as the Corpus Hermeticum, right? That um, uh, Ficino tells us, and Ficino is often um, uh, people point to Ficino as being the one responsible for for the myth of the the thrice great Hermes Trismegistus. In many ways, he is, but he he this this ancient supposed um, Egyptian sage. Um, but uh, Ficino tells us that th- these are actually the, the writings. Um, are most likely the works of a group of Egyptian priests who um, ascribe their writings to the God that served as their inspiration. So he's not speaking about a, necessarily a person um, in the same way as we could think of Moses as a person. But anyhow, I'm, I'm moving away from Moses, but I wanted to make the point that Ficino also looks at uh, what we could look at different, um, different traditions um, that aren't just the, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition.
1: Indeed. And so this raises another question that several of our uh, attendants have asked. Uh, I'll give one version of it. Uh, Richard asks about this question of Christ and what the role of Christ has. Richard uh, writes, it seems like Ficino needed, uh, all that Ficino needed for religion was already there in Plato. Why is there any further revelation needed and what role was there for Jesus Christ? hmm
2: well, there's an important role. Um, any reader of Ficino uh, sees um, Christianity um, uh, all over Ficino's writings. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the De Amore is a particular work insofar as uh, there aren't really um, the, the, the same levels of explicit Christian references or biblical references that we would find in many of his other commentaries on Plato. Any reader of Ficino, you can open any of his dialogue, any of the commentaries of the dialogues, you'll find biblical quotations. Um, but the De Amore, he's interested in in developing something like um, a, a platonic theology on its own terms. This is what, what I've, I've argued to, to, to see the extent to which um, it's possible. So what that would mean is that the, the the notion of Christ as intermediary, if we take Ficino's De Amore seriously, not just something like a thought experiment, which it might have been, I think it would mean for Ficino that, 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 that Christ is most certainly a way, but not necessarily the sole way um, in terms of being an intermediary. I think he's, Ficino is actually seriously open to the possibility of looking at um, beauty as, a, as an intermediary in its own right, as other, looking at other um, soteriological figures um, other than Christ. He's, for example, he writes um, a letter as a response to um, another humanist who's concerned about um, the fact that Ficino might be putting up Socrates as uh, a, a a rival to Christ. And Ficino says, no, I'm most certainly not doing that. Um, but he writes a letter where he, Ficino is deeply concerned over a classic problem that we've encountered that we, we encounter in medieval texts of the salvation of pagans, the virtuous pagans, um, what happens to them um, before the advent of Christ. And um, Ficino is interested in looking at a real, authentic, true religious experience uh, prior to the advent of Christ. So Christ, in many ways, you can look at it as he, in many passages, he, he, he if his writings, he, he writes um, in very traditional ways of Christ being something like the fulfillment or the culmination of a prefiguration of, 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 of uh, Old Testament um, uh, types. But uh, so therefore the, the really being a fundamental break, but he, he's um, also interested in looking at, uh, uh, I suppose, religion in its own as its own um phenomenon um and not just limited to, to biblical revelation All
0: right.
2: so again it, it touches on the same my answer i think touches on the same uh, uh points that i've uh, i was trying to make in the, in the first question i think
1: indeed there's there's a whole lot wrapped up in this and we're coming to the end of our time uh and so we'll have to ask as you said professor uh tamara albertini uh next week about. Uh, the role of women in correspondence perhaps with Pacino. With, with um, finishing out perhaps today though, uh, I wanna to turn to this question of love again, with, with love with, in terms of Christ and, and this Neoplatonic Eros that he's, he's melding. Um, we've had several different questions and I'll have to pick one of them on this, on this topic. Uh, we've had, there, there's one question from Sean about this classical uh, classical Christian ideas of love. Uh, Sean asks about Augustine, who identifies four types of love in the city of God, uh, sh- uh, desire, happiness, uh, rejection, and sadness. Is there any hint of, of uh, Ficino using uh, these Augustinian concepts or melding them into his reading of, of the Platonic texts?
2: Yes. Uh- um, I, I've uh, elsewhere spoken about um, Ficino's hyper-Augustinianism, mm-hmm. and by that I mean he's deeply, deeply influenced by uh, St. Augustine. Um, but I say hyper, um, not just to, to, to speak about it um, as being he's very influenced, but also insofar as he goes beyond Augustine. So very often when Augustine says, uh, starts to, to, to draw a path and then says, but don't go any farther, Ficino goes farther. Um, and uh, here I think on love, what becomes important for him uh, in particular, as I, brought, I, I tried to make clear in my talk is uh, both Proclus and Pseudodionysius the Areopagite, right? The early sixth century um, church father who was thought in Ficino's day by Ficino II um, to have been St. Paul's um, a, a convert in the Acts, right? Um, on the Areopagite when he's preaching to the Athenians. Um, and in this work, uh, uh pseudo in the fourth book of, on the divine names says, you shouldn't be afraid to use the word Eros. He says, to speak about God as a divine name Eros, right? Not, not, not agape, but Eros, right? Or not philanthropia, eros is, is fine to use. And he's, in, and he's actually, this is a, um, a question that Proclus had already asked prior and he says basically the same thing, right? It's okay to use the word eros to speak about the divine. We have this platonic precedent. So um, Ficino is most certainly uh, um, influenced by St. Augustine's thinking on, on, on love and charity um, and on desire. Um, but uh, he's also looking at this this other Platonic tradition of of philosophy of love um, and theology of love from from primarily from uh, from the Corpus Dionysiacum.
1: Wonderful. Uh, there, there's many other questions I'd love to ask, but I think we we're coming to the end of our time. So thank you so much, uh, Professor Robichau, for this very engaging, very interesting and really erudite uh, presentation, something that will richly reward uh, rewatching. I think, uh, for all of us.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, well, this was Professor Rob- <laughs> Robichaud, thank you again. And as Robert mentioned, um, you can re-watch this video on our YouTube page, or you can also download it as a podcast and listen to it there, as well as all of the lectures within our series. Um, if you enjoyed today's lecture, I hope you'll join us again next week as we um, uh, hear about women humanist in the renaissance paradise and free speech in moderta fonte Um, but also um, if you have appreciated our work here and if you'd like to support us um, you can donate today at www.louinchristie.org otherwise once again please join me in thanking our professor um, professor robichaud for a fantastic presentation And we look forward to welcoming you to um, Lumen Christi, the University of Chicago and the Gavin House once it's possible again. Thank you.
2: I look forward to it. Thank you for the questions and thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.